I'm Margaret Mueller, President and CEO of the Executives Club of Chicago, Chicago region's top business forum. Join me on the Executives Exchange as we go deep with some of the most successful executives from the Chicago region and unlock the keys to their success. Trust me, you're going to want to hear this. All right. Welcome, Dory. I'm so glad you're here. Margaret, thank you. I've been looking forward to speaking with you. This is so fantastic. I know. Me too. We've been trying to do this for a while and summer's been a little nutty, but we made it. And I think I had to reschedule on you and you were so patient. And But here we are. That's all that matters is we are here now. Absolutely. Um, so I'm sure a lot of people listening know you know of you, but we're going to cover some things they may not necessarily know about you. That's what we like to do on this podcast. So let's just start from the very beginning. I know that you were born in Chicago, but you were raised in Racine. Tell me a little bit about your childhood and an experience that you think shaped who you are today. So we moved, so my mom moved us with my dad to to Racine when I was about two years old. And, you know, my family has that great Mississippi migration story, right? My dad was raised in Mississippi, absolutely during the civil rights movement era, and um, went north to get the good jobs, right? And so um, moving us to Racine was absolutely a part of that. So spent my childhood being raised in Wisconsin, but frequently spending summers in Chicago. So I was establishing my regional citizenship way back then. <laughs> and um, I would I would say that from a shaping experience that um, it's not sort of that one thing, right, that I, I call out as this is what absolutely shaped me, but it was more about sort of a series of experiences as well as, you know, quite honestly, just how I was raised. I was fortunate that, you know, my dad had that, that Southern upbringing. And he just really instilled in us that you respect all people, that you treat all people with with great value, and that, um, you know, that no one is beneath you, right? So I just really appreciated having that upbringing and, and being in Wisconsin to experience that type of living. Were you the only kid in Wisconsin that would say sir and ma'am? <laughs> No, but we wave at everybody and they would be like, you know, those McGee girls, that was my name at the time. Those McGee girls, they will speak every time they see you. If we're running up and down the block, every time we're like, hi, hi, hi. So, <laughs> so I am a prolific greeter because of that. It's really hard for me to walk by people and not acknowledge them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, well, and I'm sure so many people say hi to you too, because yeah. you have lots of friends around town. <laughs> uh, what did you want to be when you grew up? An accountant. Oh my goodness. Oh, come on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Who says that? <laughs> I did. I did. I really, so, and it's documented. I have this letter that I wrote to Santa ensuring that my request to become an accountant would, would someday come true when I was 11 years <laughs> old. And so, but I have to say that I really love math. And I read this nonfiction book report. I did a nonfiction book report back when I was in like the seventh grade. And that book report. Um, was about accountants. And I remember grabbing it off the shelf and it said that an accountant made $30,000 for 30 minutes at a board meeting. I was like, I want to do that. Oh <laughs> so, my gosh. And so seriously, since that time forward, I just have always focused on, you know, I took bookkeeping in high school and just really focused on becoming an accountant. So you look the dream. only person who had a dream at 11 to be an accountant. That's I, I know. It's kind I of rare. It. Yeah, I love it. Um, not in the same vein, but kind of similarly in high school, I everyone asked me, like, was I a cheerleader or anything? They said, no, I was the statistician for the basketball team, for the baseball team, and for the football team. That's so that's what I did all sports seasons. I did stats yeah. um, for the teams. And then lo and behold, I went on and got a PhD in demography and statistics and all oh, that. Nice. So I guess this stuff does show up early. Well, it does show up early because not only was I um, in, you know, was a bookkeeper or took bookkeeping in high school, but I also was a cheerleader in high school. And so I'm really proud, Margaret, of the fact that my senior year, so the senior class awards, I actually got most school spirit and most likely to succeed. <laughs> that's a great combination. Yeah. So, I, I, so it does show up. <laughs> yeah. That's fantastic. Um, so you are an accountant uh, and you're many things. So you've had this amazing private sector career, nonprofit or service or civic sector career, whatever we want to call it. Um, you and I have 
talked about this many times. Nonprofit is nothing more than a tax status. These are all businesses. It's part of why you are so successful is you approach it like a business. Um, so let's talk about first just your roots in management consulting, what you learned then that you think has made you such a powerful leader in outside of that world. One of the, I would say, from a defining career moment was absolutely the time that I spent at Arthur Anderson starting my career. Um, you know, I was with Anderson at a time, and Anderson has always been, at that time, had always been on the leading edge of developing new methodologies and new processes. But one piece that really stuck with me is that they had developed this global best practices database. And what was so significant about that was that it was always comparing random things like what does, and it used to have ads that would run that would talk about what does um, a uh, crew, uh, uh, the racetrack crew changing um, tires have to do with like the stock market or the, and it was just all these random things that they would find these really unique correlations to, but it taught me how to think like that, right? Like what are the, what are the opportunities that you see? And then what are those experiences that may be common or parallel to that, mm-hmm. but they may not be exactly the same thing. Right. And so, you know, for me being in management pattern consulting, recognition. you were looking for yes, pattern. pattern recognition. Yeah. Absolutely. So being at Arthur Anderson, as well as being at Booz Allen Hamilton and, and participating, I was so fortunate that I was on a team at Booz um, during the late 19, late 1900s, <laughs> early 2000s, um, that was working on the project to modernize the IRS. And that's when they completely um, transformed the IRS to a customer center focus, so customer centric focus compared to a geographic focus. So there was just a lot of heavy transformation and change management that has been throughout my entire career. And so, you know, so that experience in management consulting absolutely shaped me in terms of how I look at things, how I think about things and how I put the pieces together. Yeah. You were um, AI before there was AI. (laughs) (laughs) Which is so funny because I talk about this all the time. I was like, somebody has to actually put the pieces together at some point to conceptualize. And you know this being in statistics that you just have to, someone has to conceptualize something at some point, right? Right, right, right. So you left the private sector after about 20 years to become Mm -hmm. the CEO of the YWCA. Tell me a little bit about that journey and how you knew it was time. Well, for me, it had always been about, and I'll, I'll reference actually this letter that I wrote to Santa Claus for <laughs> requesting that I'm an accountant, that I become an accountant, um, the naivete of that. But however, the for me, in that same letter, I sent three requests. One was to make everyone alive today be okay. Oh. Two was picture a picture for proof that Santa was real and three to be my parents accountant. And so I go back to that point because there's always been this continuous track for me that I just love humanity and I love people and I want people to have positive life experiences. And so from my standpoint, you know, even working in management consulting, it was a very human capital intensive business, right? Like our focus was how do we um, leverage the human capital resources to create, um, that was the business, right? To help, you know, solve other problems for, to solve, help people solve their problems um, relative to their businesses. And so for me, doing the work at the YWCA was really an extension of that, that I get to work on societal's pro- society's problems. And so that's why it's for, you know, as we talked about approaching not just the nonprofit model as a business, but also really understanding what is our outcome of that business. And mm-hmm. so for me to, to be in a business that, that cared about people as its outcome, as its deliverable, as its output is the most exciting business in the world. Right. right. And so so coming into it was it was never about the nonprofit sector. I let other people write that narrative. Yeah. <laughs> that was never what it was about. It yeah. was always about I get to be in the business of helping people or empowering people or helping yeah. them, you know, live better lives. Like that to me, as much as I love other types of businesses and study other business models, the ultimate business for me was help people live better lives. And so yeah. That's why I wanted to be in this sector, because I wanted to really be closer to that. And if my goal in life is to continue to, you know, what I hope it to advance society, then being in a nonprofit at least gave me very direct ability to do that. Yes. And you really shifted the model. You transformed the YWCA to be a thriving social enterprise. I mean, you brought a ton of tech innovation 
you created an ETF, you diversified your revenue streams, expanded your services, you know, I can go on and on. So you clearly were bringing that you know, business yeah, mindset like, well, the to whole a social marketplace, enterprise. right? Yeah. So for me, you know, being a social enterprise means that you're understanding your value in the market and then you're leaning into understanding your your role and then how you capture that value. And nonprofits, in my opinion, don't recognize, yes, they have a, um, a tax status and perhaps a goal to break even, but at the same time, you have a goal to fulfill the work that you need to get done. Yeah. And that only happens if you have resources to do that. And yeah. so with the YWCA, I just looked from a market perspective and say, hey, we're a social enterprise because we understand what's happening in the market and we will we will absolutely leverage that. And so that was our goal so that we yeah. could be um, an organization that met the marketplace needs as well as um, extracted the value that we were creating as a result of yeah. that. I mean, it really grew tremendously under your mm -hmm. leadership. I know you're incredibly proud of it. Um, and then to add to that growth, you also got this amazing gift from Mackenzie Scott. And I love this story. Uh, so if you can just share with people kind of sure. how this all happened, because I think a lot of people have some similar stories when they got the yeah. call or the email. And I just yeah, love to hear this, yours. Yeah, we got this random email. Um it was on a Monday and we had our senior leadership team Monday mornings. And so I remember being in our senior leadership team meeting and I was like, you know, we need to think big. What if we got $50 million <laughs> overnight, right? Like I literally said that. And so, but then I also got this email and it was sounded kind of cagey. I was like, hmm, but you know me, I'll, I'll see what's possible, right? So it was this email that said, you know, we have a donor that would like to give you some funds, you know, what time can you be available? And so we set up a time and it happened to be that Monday evening. And so when the, her representative called to let us know, to let me know what, um, what they were planning to do, which was give us $9 million, totally unrestricted. I just started bawling and like big yeah. time, like ugly cry bawling. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I was like, you just have no idea what this will do for our organization. And so, um, I was just so excited. And so I quickly, we are, all of my senior leadership team were on a, a group text thread. And so I was like, hey, we need an emergency meeting. And I was like, yeah, y'all must have really thought big because we just got $9 million. <laughs> you know? And so we were just all doing the happy dance on the phone. So, um, yeah. but yeah, it was, it was just so incredible. And then it was really the gift that kept on giving because of course we got a lot of media outreach because of that. You know, some organizations was fascinating that they took different approaches. We were very public about ours. We were like, we got this money and um, we got covered in the New York times because of that. Like the New York Times photographers came to my house so that they could, you know, complete their story. So it was just yeah. a gift that kept on giving in terms of helping us, you know, raise awareness about the great work that we were doing in Chicago. Yeah. And that's part of what she wanted to do. Exactly. And from what I hear, in addition to just the sheer volume of the gifts, what also made them so impactful is that they were unrestricted. So can you explain for listeners who don't understand what that means, why that was so important and why they should be thinking about this when they are thinking about their giving? Absolutely. And I say this, that, you know, when people buy M&Ms, they don't necessarily, their, their purchase isn't designated to go to red number five, but in the nonprofit space, right, that, you know, our programs and funding for our programs are very specific that people can risk their support to go to a certain program or a certain type of you know resource, whatever the case may be. And so for McKinsey Scott to come along and say, we just want to support your work, it just really gives us the flexibility to make sure that we, as I mentioned, that we're meeting the needs of the market and meeting the needs of the community and doing it the way that we see is best, you know, regardless of um, you know, what others may want to have us do. And yeah. so it's really just important because, you know, one thing I think people forget that nonprofit leaders are really experts in their space. And so, um, and it's their craft. So our, our, you know, I cannot be a social worker or a counselor um, and recognizing that, you know, we need to support the people to get the work done. And so the un getting unrestricted gifts really facilitates that um, so that we're not so specific that we have to spend it on the red number five, right? We just have right. to do what we need to do um, to accomplish the mission. That's a really good analogy. I'm going to use that one. I use it all the time. One, I like M&Ms, yeah. but two, um, I just think it really points to the sum of the absurdity, quite honestly, of yeah. how when we purchase any other product, we don't necessarily specify what that yeah. you know, how those dollars are allocated to the inputs of those products. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
So Dory McWhorter really became synonymous with the YWCA during this time, all the work you were doing. And about a year ago, you left to lead the YMCA. Why the shift? Sure. Well, as you mentioned, all of the great things that we were able to accomplish at the YWCA, um, I really felt that we were we were really in a good place. And so, you know, one of the things I really care about is the the city of Chicago and believe that there are so many opportunities to really create um, true change, but also impacts the impact the lives of many people. And so, when the YMCA opportunity became available, and I became aware of it, as of course recruiters doing their job reaches out and and say, hey you know, thought you should look at this. Um, what I realized is that the YMCA is also a great platform to create impact. And having been able to work with the, the YWCA and really put it in a good position, um, recognizing that the YMCA would have be in a very challenging position given it's coming out of COVID, it was mandated close. And so I was like, ooh, again, going back to my management consulting days, that's my kind of tea, right? That there's oh, yeah. great opportunity to transform something. And so, and transform something to the betterment of society is like, ooh, they're talking my language now. <laughs> and yeah. so, um, and so I thought that, you know, we got that plate spinning, the YWCA is doing its thing and yeah. helping serve the people of Chicago. So if I can app- optimize the ability of the YMCA to do the same? Ooh, what will we do? What can we see happen in this city? And so I wanted to take that challenge on. That's really great. I mean, and you took the helm at arguably one of the most challenging times for any CEO. And then what you just mentioned about the organization, uh, what was the most challenging part about those first, let's just say 90 days? Yeah, I think um, a couple things that we were still in the thick of of COVID in yeah. terms of mask mandates and vaccination yeah. mandates, all of those things. And so I think it was really challenging to navigate that um, because you have community uh, centers. I mean, we have we have community yeah. centers that you know, and based on the nature of the services, we can't teach people to swim via Zoom, right? right. So. <laughs> So I'm sure there's someone I say that, but I'm sure someone's on YouTube teaching someone to swim right now. However, um, that's not our sure they approach. <laughs> I was like, yeah, everything is, is I, I suppose, yeah. um, can be created in a virtual form. However, that's not our approach. And so that was challenging, right? Because we do have a broad footprint that covers the, the Chicago metropolitan area is, yes, city of Chicago, plus the surrounding suburbs. And we have locations in Michigan and Wisconsin as well. And so, you know, really navigating all of these different sort of jurisdictions relative to the mask mandates and and the vaccine mandates. And that was really challenging because it was directly impacting our our income and ability to serve the communities in the ways they wanted to be served. And so that what I that's one thing I would say was pretty challenging. But we got through it. And and here we are and really to continue to see ourselves on an upward trajectory. Yeah. So speaking about your love of Chicago and wanting to have an impact, would you ever run for mayor? Oh, God, no. That's a hard job. <laughs> it's a hard job, isn't it? That's a hard I job. I know. I say it's a crap yeah. job. I mean, yeah, it's, just- it's a hard job. And, you know, and I and I just really applaud anyone, of course, our, our current mayor, and, and I always, you know, presume people are doing the best that they can. And so I yeah. just think it's really hard to serve the 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 base of constituents that we have in this city, which one yeah. makes the city so great, and so plus the just the the pure challenges that you have in a major urban, you know, global economic center. There's a lot here, and so I don't know that every anyone will ever be happy happy with one person, and yeah. so I just think that folks have to to get in, do that job, and you know, really give it their best, and yeah. you know, let's all hope for the best, but we all have to do our part too. I know. I mean, it really is one of the beautiful things about the city is our diversity. I mean, I think the latest stats I saw, um, I mean, roughly, it's mm-hmm. a third Hispanic, a third Black, a third White. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's obviously other um, racial and ethnic groups in there, and it's not exactly – but it, it's kind of how it shakes out. So yeah, that is very yeah. challenging. It is. Um, it is. We were, you know, with Chicago Community Trust, um, they have a, a group that they support called Two Thirds United. And, and what it is, is to your point, a third being African-American, a third being Latino. So two thirds, those Black and Latino groups together are looking at how we can partner and do more for the city together. So it's called Two Thirds United. But yeah. um, but I do think that that creates such a unique landscape, which yes. is why I love doing I'll air quote nonprofit work here because we absolutely have pretty much every challenge 
that humans are experiencing represented here. And if we could figure it out here, what could it model for the rest of the world, right? And so I do consider Chicago the center of the universe. And if we can work on our challenges, create the different opportunities and continue to um, really support people in the many ways that we can, I just, I really do think of what it could mean for the rest of the world for us to pilot and try those things here. Mm -hmm. Is there anything either at YWCA, YMCA, or any of the boards you've sat on where people have come from the outside and looked at something Chicago is doing in the nonprofit space? Not that I'm quite aware of just yet. I know what, what we did with the exchange traded fund, um, yeah. that, that, that really is a very unique model. Oh, yeah. And so others continue to understand how can we leverage the capital markets differently to, um, to accelerate social change. And so that's something that, but not necessarily specific to Chicago as it was specific to the team at the YWCA that did it at yeah. the time in partnership with, of course, impact shares, the investment advisor that created the product. But I do think that there's just models of things that are happening um, is, you know, we see with whether it's something that P33 is doing. I just think that there's all these types of things that are happening in Chicago and we just have to continue to amplify those things and, and test and try things right until we, until we do get it right. Yeah. Which again, back to these unrestricted gifts, that's what is so powerful. It allows you to just test and try things and it's okay if it doesn't work, but you needed to try it. And I think that's also what she's trying to do is infuse or provide capital and resources to spark innovation and new ideas because Mm -hmm. otherwise without that, you can't, it's too risky, right? You're not going to use some donor's money to do something and have it fail and report back. Oh, thanks for that money. But you know. We don't Absolutely. have anything to show for it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so powerful. So you clearly still love accounting. You just rolled off as board chair of the Illinois CPA Society. You're a member of the Financial Accounting Standards Advisory Council. Um, what keeps you so active with the accounting business community? Well, I know this is a podcast, but if you see my face, I'm absolutely smiling. Uh-huh. <laughs> I just love the accounting profession. One, accounting is the language of business. And so it allows me to, you know, really just understand and dissect businesses regardless of their tax status or their form, right? And so I just think it's important that as accounting evolves, that I'm still staying in the know. And because the profession too is is one of those professions that are still, is still very much underrepresented. I think it's important that that being an African-American woman, that I still show up in these places, still support yeah. the profession so that we could track others in it. Because, you know, even at the time when I was a partner at Crow, I was the, at the top 10, you know, the largest accounting firms at that time, I was the only African-American woman that was a partner at the firms. And so one Thank goodness that have more have been are in those roles since then. But at the same time, the the profession still has less than one percent of of partners are African American, which to me, being such a central profession to business, that needs to change. And so mm-hmm. I absolutely love the profession for what it is relative to what it does and accounting and being the the master recorder of business transactions. But at the same time, um, it's just such an opportunity for people to change their, their socioeconomic status too as a profession. So it's, yeah. to me, it's just really important for me to stay involved. And I was so proud of becoming the chair of the Illinois CPA Society, again, going back to my letters and to Santa, little girl's dream come true, but also, you know, being the the first African-American chair of the society, you know, given that we, Arthur Anderson was a chair, Arthur Young was a chair. So we had this legacy in Chicago oh, cool. that's just amazing. Plus we had Mary T. Washington Wiley, who as a CPA was never had the, had, never had the opportunity to be chair. And she was the first She's in Chicago and the first woman, black woman CPA in the country. And we have all of that legacy here in Chicago. So when I became chair, like I literally was like, oh, I'm so excited. Just cried because it was just such an important moment. And to know that, you know, other figures like Lester McKeever even was had never had the opportunity to be chair. And so to me, it was just so important um, to have that role and be in that position and was just so grateful that, um, you know, my colleagues at the Illinois CPA Society and Todd Shapiro, the the president of the society, um, allowed me to serve in that capacity. Whenever I see things about organizations where, um, you know, some demographic group was not allowed until 
whatever the year. So pick it, whether it be women, non-white people, whatever it is. Every time I look at the date, I'm like, that was way too soon. I'll go like, what? Like there's some organizations where like it's in the eighties. Yeah. Like women were first allowed in 1982 or, right. you know, African-Americans first welcomed in 1986. It's like, yes. what? How, I like, know. It just feels, I, it's just shocking to me why these things took so long. It, I, you know, exactly. and I was a teenager then, um, so I wasn't, and I was a white teenager, so mm-hmm. I was not aware of a lot of these things. So I wasn't experiencing it. So reading it later, I'm like, that that, that couldn't have just been 20 years ago. Then. Right, exactly. I mean, yeah, it's bonkers. Um, so I've been reading this Harvard Business Review article on the tri-sector athlete. Have you read this? Do you know about this? I have. I don't you need to I read have. it. Okay, um, I will. It's really cool. So there's Taking this concept. Notes. Yeah, there's this model of the tri-sector athlete, and that's private, um, public and government. Mm. And there's been a lot written about that. If you can, if you've had experience in these three sectors as a leader, you're this tri-sector athlete, this unicorn and how powerful you are for organizations. Mm-hmm. And you embody this in so many ways. You know, you have this expansive and diverse set of experiences and lenses through which you're viewing the world, um, business, society. So now that I've just given you the the 10 second version, but definitely read the article. Okay. I'm wondering if you can reflect on that and your tri-sector view of the world and how this helps you think about problems and possibilities different from others who come from a single lens or maybe just two of the three lenses. Sure. Well, part of it is that I really do take a marketplace approach and, and root and anchor everything that I think about in context of the market that we live in, right? And what that means. And so we know that those sectors actually represent different parts of the marketplace. And so for me to have experience across those sectors, or at least really understand and appreciate what each role of those sectors play, I think is super important. And so if we're going to truly change marketplaces, which is ultimately what we need to do as we we are a capitalist society, and so we need to understand what are the what are the dynamics of the market, and those are the three sectors that that control the market dynamics. And so, to me, the more we understand all of those pieces and how they work together, allows us to advance society. And so, to to that point, my goal is to continue to take a cross sector approach to you know solving the world's problems and market by market, right? And starting here in Chicago, what can we do and leveraging the best of all those sectors? of the market to really make true change. And it really is about advancing society for me. It really is about, you know, I say that all businesses are social enterprises, whether they know it or not, because Mm -hmm. they have an impact. The question is, was an impact intentional? Was an impact positive? And Mm -hmm. so many times people are not aware of their full impact that they have. um, And sometimes it's mostly negative, right? And so, but what can happen if you're aware of how each of those sectors play a role in truly creating a positive impact? I just feel like we have just as humans, we have not even scratched the surface of the possibilities we have because we haven't leveraged enough of the sort of cross-sector collaboration I think is needed. And we haven't leveraged everyone because we marginalize people, whether they're women, people of color. So there's just no way we could be our best knowing that that's the approach that we take every day. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor, Sure. Audio equipment for the Executives Exchange podcast is provided by Sure Incorporated. When your team is depending on you for information and motivation, you can't afford to sound anything less than clear and confident. For nearly 100 years, performers and world leaders have depended on Shure microphones. Whether you're in front of a camera or behind a podium, Shure lets you sound extraordinary. Welcome back. So there are many things I admire about you, many, many, but I think what I admire about you most is your optimism or what you call your possibilism and your ability to constantly see the good or the potential in things. I am way more cynical than you. You know, when we sit down and talk, I'll I'll often ask you like, what do you think about this? And you always give me hope. So I need to spend more time with you for many reasons, but <laughs> particularly for that reason. So you'll rub off on me a little more. Um, But let's talk about where corporate America is today on social and racial justice. I'll just ask you first, how would you grade corporate America? C. A C. Mm -hmm. And why? You know, not quite D because at least there's intent there, but (laughs) I don't think the actions are 
enough just yet. Yeah. And so, you know, if C is a little, you know, below average-esque, that's mm-hmm. where I think we are. We have not, you know, corporate America have done has done as a a sector, many amazing things, and we've advanced as society and people because of the the innovations and opportunities that corporate America has provided us. But they have not helped do enough to advance racial and social justice. So let's just educate our audience a little bit. We'll give them the you know two minute version. What are the fundamentals of creating an inclusive marketplace for a business? One is to recognize that everyone within the market has value. The question is, how do we um, connect that value? And Mm -hmm. so I think that that's really important. And really leaning into what that potential is within everyone, I think, helps us maximize that value to truly to really do um, create that inclusivity. And that's just we just haven't done that. Yeah. So what parts, if any, have you seen corporate America actually move the needle on? Is there anything that they are significantly moving the needle on? Any element? I think, you know, from an environmental side, I think folks are are absolutely more aware of that. And so in really putting priority, making it a priority and understanding the impact they will, that their actions have on the environment. So I think that that's really positive. And again, I'm looking at from an ESG framing, what yeah. does that look like? And so yeah. I do think that corporate America is absolutely more at least aware of the E and still need to do a lot of work on the S. Yeah. Is there any organization you would hold up as a model? I don't know that one gets it right across the board. I think that there's individuals that that do things and have great platforms. Um, I often talk about McDonald's as being one of my favorite companies, just because, you know, in a in the U.S. alone, they employ eight hundred thousand folks, and you know, it's it's been documented that because of the way they operate their supply chain and um, their franchise network, that they have created more black and brown millionaires than any other economic entity. So really? I think that, and then their board is one of the few, I think there's four Fortune 500 companies that have sort of a majority minority board and McDonald's is one of them. And so in Chicago, I think that they have a lot to um, to look to as models. Now I do argue with people all the time that want to say, well, you know, well, what about their food? And I'm like, well, I enjoy a filet of fish, so I can't speak to that. But at the same time, I do think that from an operating perspective that they um, are aware of their the opportunity they have as a platform to create a lot of social change. And even with their, because of the nature of um, their business too, they do hire more um, black and brown youth than other businesses as well, because they literally are in every neighborhood. And so Mm -hmm. I think that we have to look at those models now, whether they were extremely intentional about every single thing that they do, you know, only they know that to some degree. But I do think that they've been putting out um, information around what they're doing to create gender equality and um, being deliberate about those things. And I know for everything I say, there's probably a, a lawsuit that that would counter yeah, right. <laughs> would, would counter that. But and there are a lot. But I do think when I think about the size and the scale and the scope of their business, I think they have a great opportunity and a great platform to continue to lean into their ability to create change. Where do you feel that we keep getting it wrong? Like, are there things that you see and you're like, seriously, again, I know you and I have talked about the problems with like unconscious bias training, that that's something we're like, just cut it out. Um, but like, yeah, are there other things? Know, I just, you know, I just realized, I, I wish more people would realize the unique gift that workplace gives us in the sense that, you know, we, we grow up in our respective neighborhoods, primarily, you know, pick the city, but primarily highly segregated, right, from, from others, just because how people sometimes um, sort of congregate and, and live together. But then when you come to work, you know, let's say you go to school and you have, you start to diversify just because it's bringing in different groups of people, then you come to work. It's probably the most diverse opportunity we have, because if you go Mm -hmm. to church, there's going to be more people like you. If you go to these other sort of places in society, but work is that one place in society that probably has more diversity in any, than any other part of your life. And so that's why I think it's really important that we do 
think about the role that work and workplace and space could play in advancing some of these societal issues. Now, I know it gets difficult because we're also divided, and I'm not suggesting that we're leaning towards one way or the other on certain issues. However, I just want people to recognize that we do have an opportunity to advance um, people's ability to create more inclusive environments. We, we really do have an opportunity through the workplace. And as I mentioned, compared to other sort of parts of society, it is our, is our best shot that we have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I don't want us to squander it, right? Workplace is just another way to organize the humans, right? right? Right. Another way to organize the people. And, you know, we have school, church, other institutions, but workplace is the one that probably offers the most diversity relative to other yeah. parts of people's lives. Right. Because we know that school and church is largely segregated. I mean, even in um, schools, like I think that documentary on Oak Park, I can't remember what it was called, but Mm. clearly demonstrated, you know, it looks like a very racially and ethnically diverse school. But then when they studied it, the social groups are so heavily segregated and there Mm -hmm. was no interaction between the two. Right. But then work, you have to interact with people that are different than yourself. And so I'm like, what, what we cannot squander that yeah. experience as humans to 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 really use that to better ourselves. Yeah. So a lot has happened these last few years. It's been a, a real hard time uh, in many, many ways. I would love to hear you because you're someone who is always thinking about what's possible. What are you hopeful about? What do you think is possible for us? Let's just say the next five years that you're you're hopeful about and you see possibility. Yeah, I'm hopeful that, you know, COVID really did bring to light a lot of the inequities and not just inequities, but um, the the opportunity for us to address certain challenges that we have in society. So that I'm hopeful that, you know, now that these things, more people are aware of these things, particularly health inequities and, and other issues that arose during COVID, how can we more proactively address those? And then also I see that when people were forced, forced to be a little more isolated, that um, they really recognize the importance of like, being together and belonging and, and wanting to create different spaces together. So I'm hoping that as we emerge and start rethinking, yes, I know it's a lot of conversation about hybrid work or remote work and um, coming back into the office, but I just really hope it's giving us an opportunity to think, how do we want to convene together? How do we want to interact together? How do we want to learn from each other and support each other and and have different experiences together? So I'm hoping that we, you know, we had, we gained a greater appreciation for, for people and humanity and what it means for us to, to thrive together. Yeah. I mean, the fact that we lost over a million people during COVID in the U.S. alone, right? I just can't imagine that we can reemerge from this moment because just the pure statistics of that, we would have all known someone or been close enough to know someone that didn't come out on the other side of this. And so I just hope that in all of this experience that we gained a little more humanity and appreciation for each other, but you know, time will tell. And you lost some family too. Mm-hmm. We lost a couple of people. Yeah. Close to. Yeah. I love your LinkedIn tagline. It's one of the best I've ever seen. It's socially conscious, international business leader dedicated to improving the world. And I think your lifelong commitment to making the world a better place has clearly shaped your career. I think lots of people say the throwaway line that they want to make the world a better place, um, but you're being very intentional about it. And so I know we talked about it a little bit before, but I want to be very pointed about it. What does it actually mean to be a socially conscious business leader today? It means that you recognize, as you know, as I mentioned, that there's nothing that we do that does not impact humanity, does it, that does not impact society. And so by being a socially conscious business leader, I want to be able to lean into that and recognize that every business decision that I make, this whole, it's not personal. It's just business. That is not a thing. It's all personal because it impacts a person at every, Mm -hmm. you could pick a decision, you could trace it back to the person it's going to impact. And so I just want to make sure that as we do business and, you know, I think about how we are hearing more conversations around stakeholder capitalism. And I actually say that it should be more humanity centered capitalism that we really need to understand 
all of the business decisions that we make and how it impacts humanity at the end of the day all the time. And I hope that it will lead us to make better decisions that ultimately support society in a different way. So that's how I want to lead. I I love business. I love um, the markets and and how we um, have an opportunity to really just influence so many people's lives by what we do on a daily basis. So. So I'm thinking about um, Ibram Zendi's book and that it's not enough to say you're not racist. You have to be anti-racist. So is it similar here that you can't just say, it can't be do no harm, but it has yes, to be do good. It has to be do good. It has mm-hmm. to be do good. It, and yeah. I say this, I actually think that that creating value and creating a positive impact, those are two sides of the same coin, right? Like value and impact go hand in hand. And I just think once people truly believe that and lean into that, again, I just think that we don't know what's possible because we haven't done that. Okay. So now I want to geek out a little bit with you as, you know, an auditor, as a board member. So let's talk about then how you're evaluating, you know, the performance of these companies and this idea of triple bottom line and um, what's actually going on. Yeah, it's interesting. So I think that it is different for everybody, right? Because if you if you look at companies and you think about who their management team is, who their leadership team is, that's those are the folks that are ultimately going to shape the direction of the company. And so some folks are very much very focused on, of course, some are focused on their customers and how they do right by their customers, which of course is important, but I also need folks thinking about their people because to me, that is their representation of society right inside their four walls. So how we do um, the work that we do for people um, or the work we do with people is, is equally as important as what we deliver to a customer. And part of the reason we actually launched the Exchange Traded Fund um, was to remind people of that, that yes, at the YWCA, we were working to support women's empowerment, but companies can do that by what they do in their policies and practices on a daily basis. And so I just think that um, every company has the opportunity to define what that is for them, because it really is going to be driven by what their leadership team wants to do and how they choose to lead. um, That's ultimately going to make the difference for us. Um, are you seeing conversations meaningfully change in the boardroom or are you talking about evaluating performance differently yet? I don't think across the board yeah. that that's happening. I think that um, if it's important, if it's incorporated into the drivers of the business and people can articulate it through there, I think that's where it comes up versus the board saying, what are those factors that, that, we should be looking at as well. I think it's mm-hmm. really important that people understand based on how they create value in their business, what are the avenues that they have to really create a greater impact? Yeah. And because they can't separate from the business, right? That's what we have yeah. now. We have right. people saying, we'll do this business, but then we'll go do some good out here. That doesn't yeah. actually work. You really do need to understand that that impact and that value creation strategy yeah. at the same time, which is why I like nonprofits because you actually have an opportunity to do that. Yes. And that's what I'm trying to figure out because, you know, everyone's talking about triple bottom line and I'm just mm-hmm. trying to understand how is it that this is actually getting evaluated outside of we're going to do a few things and we'll we'll invest in some stuff over here and do some carbon offsetting. and Yeah. Um, Mars, Mars is a good company that Mars? thinks about it. Mars. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. that, you know, listening, of course, I don't work for Mars, but hearing their CEO talk about what they want to do, I think that they're being thoughtful in incorporating it. They're looking through their supply chain as what he's talked about, their growth mm-hmm. strategy, the products and services they choose to grow in, I think yeah. is reflective of that thought process. And so, but it has to be part of the business strategy. It has to be directly connected to the business because again, I think that we we think community service is impact. That's not impact, that's community service. What's impact is when you truly integrate that, those, the levers that you have to advance society within your business model. And I don't think that companies do that enough yet across the board. M&M's. M&M's. <laughs> Another reason I eat M&M's. <laughs> um, I want to talk about the Executives Club for just a minute. Your yes. legacy with the club is longer than mine. You joined the club in 2005. Uh, can you just tell us a little bit about the impact that the club has had on your career? 
Yeah, I, so as you mentioned, when I joined the club, I was definitely earlier manager in my career and being able to participate in this young leader programs. Actually, the network that I had, we had group mentoring back then. We're actually getting together here at the YMCA because we still stay together. And this has been through babies, marriages, divorces, all of that. And so we're still, we call ourselves like this renegade group. I don't know why we consider ourselves renegade. I know why, because I think when they stopped the mentoring format, we kept going. That's great. (laughs) And so the Executives Club has absolutely been a part of of my development as a leader and being, um, you know, being able to be connected to such a great network of, of individuals and the learnings from the different speakers and just being exposed to even the, the, other executives and, and um, senior leaders that participated in the club. So I was so proud when Deb DeHaas was, um, when she was at Deloitte and was the chair of the executives club board at one time, I was the head of the the new leaders group board. And and Deb had actually hired me at to Anderson off the campus of the University of Wisconsin. So I felt so proud. Oh, that's <laughs> so, cool. And so it was just, so the executives club has absolutely been a part of, of my professional career um, when I, as soon as I really started focusing and being at the senior manager level, perhaps at that time, yeah. being able to um, grow, develop, evolve, have friendships, connect to the Chicago business community, um, really, you know, ingrain myself in Chicago, the Executives Club has absolutely been a part of that process for me. Well, I don't know when the mentorship went away. All I know is I've been here for three and a half years. And so be happy to know that it is back. It's been here as long as I've been. So um, it was the format. It was the group, this particular group mentoring style at the time. It was individual and it went group. Well, I don't know. We just, then I guess we are renegades and we just kept getting together. (laughs) No, but it may have gone away. You know, stuff has changed over the years. Yeah, yeah. It's back and it is awesome. I'm glad to hear because that was such a great experience. It is such a great experience. Yeah, that's really great. Um. You're also really big on kindness. And so I would love an example of how you incorporate kindness in your everyday life. Yeah, I just, you know, I go back to my father, you know, he used to say, particularly when I would be, you know, whining about whatever happened at work, he's like, you know, Dory, no one is better than you, but you're no better than anybody. And I'm like, okay, then. And what I think that they did, that did for me was create such a humbling moment where I'm just so conscious of how people experience me and the interaction that they have, because I really did learn at an early age that um, you are really responsible for the energy you bring into any moment. And if we have a choice, why wouldn't we choose kindness? And so I make decisions all the time that why would I reflect a poor day on somebody that has nothing to do with that day or that moment or whatever the case may be. So I think kindness is just not, um, it's, it's, to me, it's just the way you express all the time. And I just think it's important to make that choice and not in an inauthentic way. It's not that I walk around like, oh, I'm going to be kind today and I'm going to try really hard as much as it's just to me about being aware that you can really impact someone's day in yeah. a very positive way or not. So why not choose to make it in a very positive way? Yeah. I know. And I love the signature on your phone. What is it? Sent from a happy, a happy iPhone? Yeah. Sent from my, sent with love and joy from my very happy iPhone because yes. I really don't like them. Forgive anyone who's, <laughs> I ask forgiveness or if anyone whose message is like that, but that, you know, forgive my typos, my iPhone sucks. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know? uh-huh. So to me, I was like, you know, if for the amount of emails I get, if I can purvey a little love and joy through my emails, I'm going to do it through my very happy iPhone. And I love it. what's so funny is that that was just my expression, but I get so many comments from people feeling like, oh, that made me smile or that made I my know. day. And I was like, okay, okay, then it's working because that's the intent. It's working. It does. I love it. I love any time you respond from your phone. And that is yeah. an act of kindness. Yeah. Um, so you do a lot. You sit on a lot of boards. You're engaged with many organizations. You're a CEO of a major organization. So I just want to ask, what do you know about the properties of time that the rest of us don't understand that has allowed you to scale your involvement in such a powerful way? Yeah, I think a couple of things. I think that, um, you know, I always say that I enjoy eating tapas and I live my life tapas style. I like a little bit of everything. And for me, I learned so much by being, as you know, we talked about being and recognizing that 
these are all components of the same marketplace. And so by me participating mm-hmm. in these different ways, I feel like I get insights from mm-hmm. each segment that allows and allows me to use that information to inform what else I'm doing as a part of that. Um, so for me, it's it's it just all really folds together well. And so if I can manage things on my calendar and I'm interested in doing things, I just think it all matters. And so um, and really gives me insights just to have sort of that cross-sector yeah. view of things. And I just think it's really important to, to have that perspective. Yeah. I mean, it's really impressive. I'll have to sit down with you and look at your calendar one day and figure it out. <laughs> oh, it's ugly, but <laughs> I suppose so, I get it done. The last thing that we really like to do on this podcast is this just rapid fire questions, uh, if you're willing to do it. Absolutely. Okay. So don't overthink it. We'll just go okay. through them really quick. Okay. okay. Favorite emoji in a text message? Heart, but it's coming becoming cartwheel really quickly. I love the cartwheel. It's like, that's super happy. You can do a cartwheel. That <laughs> that's is my next happy. favorite one. Yeah. Favorite smell? Rose. Favorite app on your phone? Oh my goodness. The mail app. I'm always in it. (laughs) (laughs) Your best life hack. I I, I would say, I'll just say this, that you mentioned it already is, is putting my signature and spreading a little joy. It's really putting it out there for folks. Yeah. Since I'm always on my mail app and sending emails (laughs) all the time. Using a cartwheel and heart emoji. Yes. Yes. You can add those to your signature. I think I will. When you said that, I was like, that's a great idea. Do a little cartwheel. I know. <laughs> yeah. Dogs or cats? Dogs. If you didn't become an accountant, what profession would you have pursued? Architect. What is your professional mantra? A solitary fantasy can transform a million realities. How many tattoos do you have? Five. Desert Island, three products you take with you. I'll need something for the hair. So, so um, Myel beauty products for my hair. Um, something, some, some sunscreen, of course, and something so my lips won't be dry. That's my, that would be annoying <laughs> on a desert island. <laughs> Favorite song to dance to? Oh, anything by Beyonce. What would you go back and say to 11-year-old Dory who wrote that letter to Santa? Dream bigger because dreams do come true. You're such an inspiration, Dory. I'm so glad you came to talk to me today. I oh, really Margaret, appreciate it. This is it. so fun. I just enjoy speaking with you. Now you and you make me want to be better. So <laughs> that's very kind of you. Thank you for everything you do for Chicago. Um, you're just one of our most important leaders, and we're really lucky to have you. Oh, ditto. Thank you. That's all for today's episode of the Executives Exchange, sponsored by Sure Incorporated. Thanks for listening. If you have Chicago speakers you think we should cover, please send us an email at media at executivesclub.org. The Executives Exchange is a production of the Executives Club of Chicago. Audio equipment for the Executives Club podcast is provided by Shure. Whether you're making a point or making history, Shure lets you sound extraordinary. It's written by me, Margaret Mueller, produced by Eva Pinar. Research and support from the staff of the Executives Club of Chicago. We appreciate you subscribing and reviewing the show from wherever you listen. Feel free to follow the club on Twitter at Exec Club and on LinkedIn. If you have more questions or are interested about becoming a member at the Executives Club of Chicago, check us out on the web at executivesclub.org.